What up? This is Dart Adams, and this is Dart Against Humanity. So, um, those of you that follow me on Twitter or Instagram, social media, are well aware that I'm a huge Red Sox fan. The large, large part of that is because, again, I'm a Bostonian, and I grew up in a place where everybody's or a, a huge amount of people are sports fanatics. And they are fiercely loyal to their team. A lot of it has to do with the fact that we identify with our local teams and it's part of our identity. And there was the lovable loser thing that was attached to being a fan of many of these teams, not the Boston Celtics. The Boston Celtics were seen as like, you know, the cream of the NBA and they had the most titles and they were the most celebrated. They won the most te- the most games or championships in a, a short amount of time. They had uh, a dynasty going. So when I was a kid, 1986, the Celtics won their 16th championship. And that at that point, they had won 16 of the 40 NBA championships. So they had won 40% of the league championships at that time. I was 10 going on 11. But I'm a Boston Celt I'm a Boston Celtics fan. I'm a Boston Red Sox fan. I'm a New England Patriots fan. Boston Bruins fan. And a lot of that is attributed to the fact that my okay, so my earliest memories begin when I started reading. I started reading when I was about two and a half, thirty months. And that happened sometime in early nineteen seventy eight. So nineteen seventy eight is when my earliest memories are. And this is what formed me as a person. So if I think about the things that happened in 1978, one of the things that stands out to me is the Boston Red Sox 1978 season, which of course began that spring and then went all the way up until fall 1978. And that 99 win season, that up and down season where they had a 14 game lead on the Yankees in July and then lost it and ended up in a tie with them by August and then had to fight back when they were three and a half down and tied it up when they lo- and when tied it up and they won on game 162 the last day of the season and the Yankees lost I believe 9 to 2 again I remember this like it was yesterday it was a big deal it was the season that Jim Rice had 100 had 139 RBIs on 46 home runs and he was like up there in batting average. He was slugging 600. Like I remember this like it was yesterday. You know, Carl Yaskrimsky, Dennis Eckersley. And incidentally, yesterday I ran into my first person who doesn't like Dennis Eckersley, which cracked me up. But that's neither here nor there. Um, I remember the day... The Red Sox had the one-game playoff against the Yankees and how crushing it was when they lost. So, from then on, I've hated the Yankees. No duh. Now, furthermore, 1978 was a really great year for the New England Patriots, which they lost in the playoffs, I believe, New Year's Day or Eve uh, 1978 and that was a crushing blow so I experienced 
the agony of defeat, but the highs of having a great season, my first season of fandom for the Red Sox and the Patriots. And then the 1978-79 Celtics season was, um, um, yeah, We'll, we'll talk about that in another date. But Larry Bird showed up not too much later. So, my life as a Bostonian has been interesting, especially being a brown Bostonian, because they tend to not, you know, include us in a lot of stuff, or mention us, or highlight us. They act like we don't exist. And it's fucking frustrating. Uh, Case in point, my friend uh, Greg Valentino Ball, he wrote an article for a Boston magazine called Lost Edition, asking the question, why don't the uh, New England, why don't the New England pages, why don't the, uh, why doesn't New Edition get the acceptance of like rock bands, the love and the accolades of rock bands in Boston? And of course, everybody knows the answer to this question. It largely has to do with the fact that New Edition are black kids from Roxbury. And the large, the larger population of Massachusetts doesn't embrace them the same way they do an Aerosmith. Or the same way they do the Cars. Or the same way they do Jay Giles Band. Or even like... Uh, Barden Lovers, Mission of Burma, um, the Pixies, you know, like later on you have like the Lemonheads, uh, you have fucking Extreme, uh, like groups like that, Boston. So because of that reason, they don't get the same level of acceptance. Like um, I was actually quoted in his article and I said that uh, Boston loves to either erase or outright overlook the contributions of its own of Boston's uh, black populace and that they didn't really fully embrace Donna Summer or Claimer until after she passed away so this isn't exactly a lie this is largely fact I mean people knew Donna Summer was from Boston but they didn't make the point to like claim her outright until she passed away you know LaDonna Gaines came up in you know the Roxbury Dorchester area uh, dominated the talent show circuit our our world renowned talent show circuit but the problem is that Boston almost has to be forced or shamed into claiming like it's black music heritage, which is insane to me because it's so rich and so, uh, what's another word I'm looking for? Um, influential. When you look at the timeline of Boston jazz, soul and funk and what it did throughout going back to the 30s all the way up through the 90s. It's like, how do you not make it a point? To claim this incredible legacy or all the things that we've done in the world of music. So one of the things I want to do is I'd like to uh, 
get this campaign going or get this thing where uh, local colleges and universities help with funding this campaign where we do plaques and signage denoting all of the long, untagged uh, musical historical sites all along this city and especially concentrated in my neighborhood. That's South End, Lower Roxbury, Back Bay. Um, all of these, there's so many sites and so many places. There were uh, spaces where there were clubs, studios. And when you look at the sites that have actually been tagged and, and have placards denoting what they were, it's uneven versus all the far more legendary places that like I have to tell you about you know because they just haven't done the same thing for them so like that's one of the many frustrations of being a black Bostonian that our visibility isn't where it should be they don't make it a point to go out of their way and claim and uplift like the brown and Asian uh Bostonians or make it a point to get our experiences out there. So one of the things that people are experiencing right now is so the movie Crazy Rich Asians is coming out and a lot of people are going to support it because one, they want to see the film. They want to see uh, diversity so they, so, they, so they know that they're voting with their dollars. So they want it to have a huge box office run. So hopefully it opens up the, the floodgates. We're like, oh, wait, these people, whoever these people may be, want to see these stories. They want to see themselves on film. So we need to make more films like this or fund more films like this or find more creators or directors or writers who to tell these stories. And the hope is that there'll be a variety of stories. Like people, There are people that look at Crazy Rich Asians and they're just like, that's not my experience or I can't relate to it. The point is to tell all of the stories. Open it up so there's a variety. There should never be one side of anything. You know, there are all these different facets and all these different uh, voices that need to be heard and all these different sides that need to be told. The reason I'm saying this is because when it comes to Boston films... Or representation in media it's always pretty much one side it's never the full gamut or the full diaspora of the experiences of living in Boston or being a Bostonian like the only in Boston uh, Twitter account they did this really stupid uh, thing and it was like rating how Boston you are and like the highest rating you could be was Wahlberg and I'm looking at all the other things like during the sliding scale and I'm just like, well, you pretty much are acting like brown Bostonians don't exist or non-white Bostonians, period, don't exist. Like our experience doesn't matter for shit. We're not even acknowledged. And that's what a big part of racism is. Racism, yes, it can be the outward preventing you from doing something. Or holding you back. Or suppression. But what it also is. Is acting like you don't exist. The full erasure. 
or ignoring you entirely. All that falls into racism. And it's also a big reason why I don't fuck with uh, things like barstool sports. Fuck y'all. Um, barstool sports is just not something that I would ever lend my anything to in any way, shape, or form. Uh, it's kind of kind of like the polar opposite of what I'm here to do. So the things that we do at for Boston, because uh, with uh, the Boston Legends line and collection and the stories we want to tell, is kind of sitting directly uh, on the other side of the fence from what. Barstool Sports does and other outlets like that. Like as much as I love Boston sports, I don't listen to Boston sports radio. There are a bunch of people that you know blog and 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 do podcasts that I'm friends with that I would much rather lend my support to and much rather listen to and and show up on their podcasts, you know, and like signal boost them than to ever fuck with something like Barstool Sports. But this is not the point of what I was even came on here to do. So that was a weird tangent. Alright, so um, earlier in this week there was a discussion about uh, freestyling or what freestyling is. Why? Of course it came back to something Nicki Minaj said. And so Nicki Minaj uh, tweeted that she wrote a freestyle. And a bunch of people were like, wrote a freestyle? You can't write a freestyle. And I was like, well, now people say that, but that wasn't always the case. Words change meaning over time. And especially in like rap slash the hip hop space, meanings of things have changed over time because the thing about urban music and especially hip hop, as I explained before, is that we have cycles. Or, or or generations, micro generations. They last every like three to five years. So there's a period where something can happen, and that whole thing can change when the next generation comes up. So think about what happens over a span of like 35 years with a word. So um, freestyle. Again, I kind of explained that freestyling didn't always mean a spontaneous improvised off the top of the dome all freestyle used to mean when i was young was here's a rhyme that's written or performed that's not in the form of a song with no specific subject matter here you go or what some people would consider a free verse you know LL Cool J is on record and you can go on YouTube and you can listen and he'll be like, yo, 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 can I kick a freestyle? Want me to kick a freestyle? 84, 85, 86. And he just starts rapping and none of those joints that he's doing were ever on a song that he recorded. So that was the idea of a freestyle. Later on, uh, most uh, notably, I'll say like uh, during the new music seminar, there were people that would, you know, go off the top of the dome and just rap. 
spontaneously. Uh, one of the people that did this, of course, is Roxanne Shantae. Roxanne Shantae will go off the top of the dome when you listen to her song. She didn't have she didn't have somebody writing her rhymes, and so later on, when I believe she came back to Warner Brothers, I mean when they when uh Cole, Cole Chillin signed the Warner Brothers and they brought her back, and I believe they had Big Daddy Kane, you know, pinning her songs like "Go On Girl" and stuff like that. Uh, later on, like around 87, 88. But like between like 84, 87, if you listen to her songs, it's just her going off the top of her head. But like you had cats like um, the cats from um, Cleveland who entered the uh, new, uh, new music seminar battles. I believe Surge. Like cats like that, just like there was a, a a line of Cleveland dudes that rhymed and did well in the battle, and they would do spontaneous off the top of the dome rhymes. This is the late '80s, but this wasn't regular because you can listen to Big Daddy Kane versus Jazz Fresh, and he's doing a battle and he wrote those rhymes, and you hear them later on a single that he put out. But at the time, it hadn't been recorded. So people going crazy over his rhymes. And I believe Jazz Fresh was doing some stuff that he pre-wrote. And he was like doing some new stuff off the top of his head. Like he mixed it in. But like if you go back and listen to when um, Roxanne Shantae battled Busy B for the championship. Uh, she was like 13, 14 years old battling the legend. And they all voted for the legend because they didn't want to give it to the girl. But she was coming off the top, coming off the top, and I believe at some point he was too. But like the the freestyle meaning changed over a span of time, like nineteen ninety to nineteen ninety three, and it largely had to do with um, the influence of the West Coast, which is interesting, and I'll get into that. So. Um, between this span of time, we have things on the West Coast like uh, the Good Life Cafe uh, comes up, uh, springs up. Later on, uh, we get Project Bloat. On the East Coast, we have the Lyricist Lounge um, and other related uh, things of that nature. Then later on, we have things like the New Yorkian, uh, the New Yorkian Poets Cafe. You know, then all, like all the shows in the Wetlands and SOBs and all these other venues. But they kind of fostered the ideal of hip hop between like 1990 and 1993 that like you freestyle and the meaning of freestyle had changed by then where people were doing spontaneous off the top uh, rhymes. Or you would just kick something. So one of the things that happened that like kicked off this whole East Coast, West Coast thing, which is really interesting is that on an episode of uh, Yo! TV Raps, which I'm trying to nail down the exact episode, it was a visit by um, DJ Quick. I'm trying to figure out if it was an episode with just him or it was an episode that was supposed to be for Second and None where DJ Quick was there. Or was it DJ Quick's episode where he introduced Second and None and he was talking to Fat Five Freddy? Well, Fat Five Freddy used to ask everybody to freestyle at the end of the episode. And they declined. They're like, freestyle? We don't, we don't do that shit. Like, we don't do that. Like, what, what even is that? And people were up in arms that they didn't. And that's what started eventually the whole fuck Compton thing by um Tim Dog. Because of course Tim Dog needed something to, you know, 
have people get behind it so he would put out his album and that was going to be his angle his angle was going to be fuck compton and a lot of reason it was fuck compton was because at the time in new york uh people were kind of feeling a type of way because i say straight out of compton which was released august 1988 but went like six seven months before it actually caught on really like in sales and like really exploded that was kind of the first thing that kind of took the focus away from new york leading the charge because at the same time uh while i believe like straight out of compton came out it was nwa and the posse's album re-release which was really selling and like that whole compton movement then the explosion uh uh, easy ease easy does it that fall going into that winter uh 1989 and then nwa's uh straight out of compton exploding after that and then all of a sudden like what happened was labels would start seeing this compton thing was getting big so they started signing other acts from compton uh among these groups was um compton's most wanted you know you end up with dj quick you know, we end up with a CPO later on. And people just started feeling like, oh, so everything's Compton is Compton at Compton is Compton at. So this is where the backlash began. And of course, Tim Dog jumped at jumped on it and he put out his album, Penicillin on Wax, with the lead single Fuck Compton, which turned out to be a huge hit. And it started like this this weird thing between the east and west coast which is interesting because the west coast were really pushing that freestyling was off the top and it was spontaneous and it was improvised and it was not pre-written because they wouldn't allow you to kick free uh, uh pre-written rhymes and also people point out to me in texas they also pushed this but also at the same time in texas there was also a part of texas that kind of subscribed to the same mode of thinking that dj quick and second to none had and also too short and nothing bothers me more when people tell me what's hip-hop what's not hip-hop because the fact of the matter is too short was making albums before many of the people who claimed their hip-hop were and I was listening to Too Short way before a lot of y'all motherfuckers. So at one point in time, the only people making albums was Too Short and um, probably like uh, Curtis Blow. Curtis Blow and Too Short were like the only people making albums. Because people weren't really making albums until what, like 84? Too Short had albums, multiple albums. And the only other person with multiple albums was Curtis Blow. Because Curtis Blow was signed to Mercury Records. And also I like to point out that Curtis Blow was the king of rap between 1980 and 1985. And he did not put out one classic album. Not one. And also, having a classic album back then wasn't a prerequisite. Because the art wasn't in a place where that was something that you necessarily needed to have. Although, like, who had a classic album by 85? I say Run DMC had a classic album by 85. Houdini had a classic album by 85. Did anybody else? I don't know. I don't know that anybody else really had a, a like a classic album.
by 85. Once 86 came around, you know, there were several classic albums. By 87, there were even more. By 88, there were a plethora. But if you look at 88, look at how many people had multiple classic albums. You, would you have like Houdini, Run DMC, maybe some other groups. Um, maybe Dougie Fresh and the Get Fresh Crew had multiple classics. Was Oh My God a classic album? We got, I got to figure that out. But anyway, the point I'm making is that freestyle, the idea of what a freestyle was changed over time. So by the time we get to 1993... When um, Master Ace Incorporated puts out Slaughterhouse, and one of the big points behind them making fun of that aesthetic on Slaughterhouse, the song Slaughterhouse, which people actually didn't realize was him making fun of them, and they just thought it jammed. So people would actually play the song Slaughterhouse, which was actually a, a, it was a parody. People would play it like it was a dope song. Which is nuts But like one of the reasons why that album was made To make fun of the aesthetic That yo we don't freestyle We don't do this We 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 don't really respect this as art We just do whatever But the west coast Who a lot of people were shitting on Are actually the proponents of And pushing this ideal Of what we attribute to Being real hip hop Which is really ironic and really weird and back and backwards that people don't even point out their own uh, hypocrisy. Because again, uh, also somebody who uh, who uh, hopped in my mentions and actually like explained some things was uh, Dante Ross, and he was talking about how in New York, even back in the days, they knew the difference between what a freestyle was and as far as being written pre-written versus off the top but i guess they considered them both freestyle but he just but like it's what you would call bars now was what he told me so it was just like yo just like kick a 16 was the phrase that people started using around like 98 yo 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 spit 16 but when someone says spit 16 they didn't expect you to come off the top of the dome they wanted you to spit something that you had pre-written, something that you had already had ready for this occasion. And my ex and my thing was when people came up to the radio station, whether it be um Bob Stretch and Bob or on whatever show that they wanted to, they came on, if it was time to rhyme, they had the option of if they were nice enough, go off the top of the dome improvise something or spit something pre-prepared pre-written just like on mixtapes when you look at a mixtape it would say freestyle by somebody by somebody's with somebody's name now you listen to the rhyme you didn't care if it was written or off the top as long as it was dope that was the freestyle so it was an open invitation for what for whatever you wanted to do if you wanted to have something pre prepared or if you want to have something off the top of the dome if you were nice off the dome then do it if you're not nice off the dome then spit something the the important thing is for me was the performance you didn't want to come off whack on the radio because this is what people are going to judge you off so put your best foot forward do what you can kid um so again 
I was online and there were people talking about that's not what freestyle means. I'm like, have you read the entire fucking thread where I explained how the how the meaning changed over time? Nothing bothers me more when people see one tweet of mine and jump in my jump in my mentions and I'm like, read the fucking timeline, please. If you know anything about me, you know I'm not gonna tweet one thing about something and then leave it alone. It's gonna be an entire thing. For God's sakes, I've been talking to a phone for almost 30 minutes. It's never just one thing with me. It's an entire thing. You know what I'm saying? It's like a tribe called Quest. You got to say the whole thing. A pimp named Slickback. Stoop the enemy of mankind. Anyway. So, um. Another thing that bothers me is how... There's a lack of history. Well, I mean, if you haven't been, if you weren't around, you weren't around. But there's a lack of history and understanding with certain things. Another uh, Twitter argument or debate that I got into, an extended one, was around uh, when did the obsession with numbers begin? A bunch of people were saying that it started with 50 Cent between 2003 and 2005. And I was like no it started in 1997 between 1997 and 1998 when everybody became obsessed with things other than the art form or the craft itself or their skill level or their proficiency in any of these it actually started to be about surface shit, perimeter shit, and other things of that nature. Like, how many spins a day they got? How many spins they got a week? How much they got a feature? Um, platinum jewelry. Uh, having a Phantom or a Bentley. Um, their charts, their sales numbers. Their first week sales numbers. And the reason why the focus was on first week sales numbers was because in Hollywood, the focus is on first week sales numbers. Just like in anything else, the um if you're selling comic books, the focus is on pre-orders. You need to secure pre-orders. That's how you know something's going to do well. Like if you want this to happen, let's see the pre-order numbers. That's going to tell us everything. We need to get y'all out here pre-ordering this shit. So numbers, numbers, numbers has always been something. But in rap especially, it was something that was being pushed by CEOs, um, managers, executives, artists themselves. You know, starting with Puffy... And Puffy, Puff Daddy and the family with No Way Out, you know, the bad boy shit like this song was number one on the charts. This did this. We moved this many units, you know, then Jay-Z, you know, started jumping in the fray. Then later on, you know, it was a Master P and No Limit talking about I had these many number ones and this many sales and I had this many positions in the in the um the top 200 and putting out ads in this full page ads in the source and then rap pages and then XXL and everywhere else and getting on a gang of magazine covers. 
Then later on, it extended to, you know, Suave House, Cash Money, um, uh, Hypnotize Minds, all these other labels, you know, that were just like doing it big and, and, and just got like new distribution deals. Uh, one thing that I always like to point out to people, if you were a down south label and you were able to sell 200, 250,000 units in, I don't know, six to 10 states without radio support, without your video ever being on BET or MTV, uh, without having nationwide distribution. Once you got nationwide distribution, once you got a video, once you got radio airplay, more than likely you were going to go gold to platinum. That's not really much of a reach. It really wasn't much of a reach. It wasn't much of a surprise either. To re-release albums that were already classics, like 8-Ball and MJG did, and have people actually find them in their stores finally... Yeah, it's they sold more. Think about how much they sold when they didn't even have a reach. There's a reason why people like it. It's let's just let's just, let's just assume it's good. So there's always that, right? But everybody's obsession with numbers did not begin with Fifty Cent. It had already been a thing. For about six to eight, five to eight years. And the reason why a lot of people didn't know that is again, generations change. There are micro generations every three to five years. And this guy was arguing with me on Twitter about we didn't care about that when I was 14. And I'm like, you didn't care about that when you were 14. Your friend group didn't care about it when, it was, when you were 14. I was 22, 23 when you were 14. Trust me, it was happening. You probably weren't aware of it because you were a child, but it was still happening. And when you became aware of it, it would make sense because you were my age when the 50 cent shit was happening. So your awareness level and your knowledge level of what was actually happening would have been somewhat equal to mine. But it wouldn't have been equal to mine because you ain't no fucking way. Um, But then some people chimed in when I was 14. I was doing this, this, this. I was like, yes, you were because everybody's not the same. Everybody isn't the same. Everybody doesn't have the same level of understanding. Everybody doesn't have the same um, frame of references. Everybody doesn't have the same set of frame of references. Everybody doesn't have the same um, taste. Everybody doesn't have the same... uh, What's the word I'm looking for? Everybody's sophistication level isn't equal. There are things you may like that other people don't like. There are things you may have been a hip to when you were 14. Someone else wasn't hip to when they were 14. When you were 8 or 9, you might have been advanced for your age. You might have been into shit other 8 or 9 year olds weren't. The shit I was into when I was 8 or 9 was heavily favored by the, flavored by the fact and influenced by the fact that my brother and his friends were 6 years older than me. And I would hang around them. So I'd be privy to shit that the average nine-year-old wouldn't. 
that's not everybody. You know, as I explained before a long time ago, there weren't a lot of four-year-olds in the prints. I was. There are a lot of people that didn't get into prints until they were like teenagers. It's like, and so when they ask the question, it's always, I always come off like an asshole. It's like, yo, so when'd you get into prints? 1978, the first album for you. Actually, no, that's a lie because I wasn't really that into for you. I remember hearing it and shrugging. I got into prints in 1979. And they just stare at me like, you fucking asshole. Because their answer was going to be Purple Rain, which is the default answer for a lot of people because Purple Rain was a star turn and then they asked me how I feel about Purple Rain I'm like I like 1999 better than Purple Rain and as a matter of fact I like Parade better than Purple Rain I understand that everybody loves Purple Rain because of the film but as far as an album I like the uh, interludes on Purple Rain more than the actual album Purple Rain Wendy yes Lisa is the water warm enough Yes, Lisa. Shall we begin? Less, Lisa. All that type of shit before Computer Blue. Um, the fucking um, the the instrumental break that they like that everybody starts jamming in the um in the movie. I like that shit. Like I think my favorite songs around the Purple Rain era. How did shit turn into a Prince discussion? Uh, my favorite songs around a Purple Rain uh, era might be um, 17 Days, Erotic City, and damn, when did... um? I think it might have been the single, the B-side that came out right before Around the World in a Day. So like that was my fate. Those were my favorite Prince songs in that span. Not necessarily the album, even though, yes, I do love Purple Rain, the album. But not more than some other print shit. Like Parade stomps on Purple Rain to me. And again, I there were people on Twitter upset because I said Off the Wall was a better album than Thriller. Off the Wall is a better album than Thriller. It's what it is. It is what it is. I mean, again, oh yeah, and here's another thing. So, Thriller recently being passed by um, the Eagles album, uh, Best Of album, whatever the fuck. Here's something that you guys need to understand. I know a lot of people were really angry and pissed off that this album, that this happened. But guess what? Rock, classic rock, reissues, best ofs are made specifically so the RIAA has catalog titles that always fucking move units all right always move units i feel like a lot of the times this is to prevent a lot of black artists from having the best selling albums because a lot of times black artists are prevented from having an album that's constantly in print a lot of the time i think michael jackson's success of thriller is an anomaly in that sense because there are a lot of albums by black artists that were huge that they don't move units like uh, Pink Floyd's uh, The Dark Side of the Moon does you know what I'm saying? you understand what I'm saying right? there are rock albums 
that are classic rock albums that always sell. And they've always been in print. And they'll always stay in print. And rock and classic rock stations will always keep them in the rotation. And they'll always be featured in films and television. We don't get that same protection. We don't get that same love necessarily. Unless we're talking about like Motown. Like Motown got the slide in there. Like, you know, like the Big Chill era. Because Motown was like the soundtrack for a lot of uh, white kids coming up. And like baby boomers. So they are like under the protection. Kind of. Sort of. I guess they fall in. But they don't sell necessarily in the way classic rock does. You know what I'm saying? Like... I think that's something I actually need to like really sit down and go through like what classic rock albums are constantly, of course, like the Beatles, but like what albums considered classic rock are constantly moving units and selling and how they move versus, let's say, Motown records or like other soul artists like Isaac Hayes, Hot Buttered Soul, I don't think is moving anywhere near the type of units that like classic rock is. You know, uh, I'm pretty sure the best of Sam Cooke isn't moving anywhere near on that level. Uh, Aretha Franklin's sales, I know, spiked after she passed away. But does it is it more people aren't buying stuff physically. So is it like digital sales? Streams? How many of her songs and her albums were available on streaming services like Marvin Gaye? Marvin Gaye made a gang of albums. And here's the thing also about like the album era. Uh, largely ex- exploded between 1966 and 1969. A lot of people made albums just to make albums that they're not necessarily um, essential. So th- there were a lot of albums that Marvin Gaye made early on in his career that you don't need to have. So what albums actually are available? This is something we really need to look into. Well, I need to look into y'all. I'm probably don't even give a fuck. Uh, I really think about. But yeah, the um, the Eagles surpassing Michael Jackson's Thriller was really a hot button topic, and a lot of people were pissed off about it and upset that it happened. But the way things are set up, classic rock albums are always going to get the opportunity. To usurp whatever album. And you gotta remember. Thriller passed this album a couple times. To become the top selling album. Because again. Michael Jackson's situation is an anomaly. Look at how many other black artists. Have done the same. Is it just Michael Jackson? Who's who's the second closest? I know damn well that people ain't clamoring to buy old um. Lionel Richie albums. How is how Stevie Wonder's catalog selling? How's Miles Davis's catalog selling? But how's Stilly Dan's? How's Led Zeppelin's? How's Aerosmith's? These are things we really need to look into. I know Tina Turner 
sold a shitload of albums, but like there was a stretch of time where her and Ike Turner were really trying to scrape by and survive because their sales weren't doing too tough. So they had to rely on uh, crossing over to another audience and doing uh, and touring with different rock acts and all these other things in order to stay, you know, relevant and stay on people's um, radar. Sly and the Family Stone, how's this catalog selling? These are questions we really need to think about, really need to ask ourselves about. But the only time we're going to ask these questions and even wonder is it depends on our how deep we are and how invested we are in actual music. And not just having knee-jerk reactions at the fact that Michael Jackson's thriller got passed by an album that will always sell and was selling a shitload before he even released his album in late 1982. Just the idea. And also we have to think about this. When did the best of the Eagles come out? You know how fucking long the Eagles have been around? So we have to think about that. And parallel it back to the question of why New Edition doesn't get the level of love it deserves in Boston. For the same reason... The Eagles can surpass Michael Jackson's Thriller. And the same reason Michael Jackson's Thriller had to surpass the Eagles in the first place. Oh, look at how I tied all that shit together. I'm brilliant.